Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of St. Matthias Anglican Church in Katy, Texas. Today's sermon was delivered by Father Jason Grote. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Today we heard what may be considered one of the two most well-known verses from St. Paul's epistle to the Romans. One is from Romans 3.23, which we didn't hear today. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The other is from today's lesson, Romans 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Put together, these two verses embody the whole of St. Paul's epistle. And when put together next to each other like that, they're the total expression of the gospel message. All have sinned. All have fallen short of what God created us to be. No one is perfect. No one is exempt. And as such, we're all dead in our sins. Yet thankfully, God, in his great love, sent his son, Jesus Christ, so that in and through him, we might receive the great gift of new and eternal life which we have neither earned nor deserved. And there's the gospel in a nutshell. Romans 3.23 and 6.23, sermon is over. Too bad, Harry. (laughs) Because you know I'm not going to just stop with that. (laughs) While we have these great verses, there is more to consider, just as there is more that St. Paul writes besides those two, two verses in his epistle. So this morning, I want you to open with me to Romans chapter 6, if you have your Bibles. And today's lesson in particular starts at the 19th verse. But first, we have to understand that this passage is not a passage unto itself. I mean, we hear it read that way in the service, but ultimately it is a part of a larger whole. Last week, we heard an earlier part from Romans chapter 6. And therein, Paul is setting up this aspect of the old man versus the new man. And the means for that is the death and resurrection that we have in Christ, which is affected in us through the power of the Holy Spirit in the sacrament of baptism. Look with me at uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Or do you not know? That as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. And then he continues in verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. That is the purpose and the great joy of baptism. Baptism is not simply a profession of faith to say that I choose to belong to God or that we choose to have this child, if it's a younger child, belong to God. But baptism is, as the Articles of Religion state, a sign and a seal of regeneration or a new birth. It's an act and working of God such that they who are baptized are grafted into the church receive the promises of the forgiveness of sins and are adopted as the sons of God by the Holy Spirit. It's a baptism of death unto new life in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, as St. Paul says. And having been baptized into Christ's death and resurrection, 
It's here that St. Paul then moves along in his train of thought. He goes from what Christ has done and our baptism into that work in life to the impact and the change that we must have in our daily lives and behavior because of that. What follows on the heels of last week's lesson and precedes this week's lesson is something that we didn't hear in worship. And I think it's a very powerful directive of St. Paul in verses 12 and 13, and it summarizes the entire chapter. And I say directive instead of exhortation on purpose. An exhortation to me is powerful, but it seems to have sort of a a peer-to-peer type of connotation, like I urge you to consider this. I'll share my thoughts and my perspectives with you, and I hope that you'll hear it and that you'll embrace the wisdom of it. But a directive, well, that seems to me to be more like that of a parent speaking to a child in a direct way or a superior speaking to one who is under him or her, having more of the connotation of an order. It's something that isn't up for debate. This is what you do. Do it. Now, if you have your Bibles open, look at verse 12 and 13 with me. Therefore. And here starts St. Paul's very pointed directive to the Romans and to all of us. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts or its desires. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. God's work in us is one that doesn't leave us where we are. It moves us to something much greater. The result of Christ's death and resurrection in us, the impact it has for us, is that the old man of sin, the old way of thinking, the old way of acting, the old way of doing whatever it is that I want to do, is dead and buried. And the new man of righteousness... The new man that serves God, the new man that seeks God's will, the new man that endeavors to please God, is put on. We are the servants of God, as St. Paul will explain. And that's where our lesson today picks up. Verse 19 echoes his previous directive and begins to argue for the reasoning of it. Look at verse 19. And I'm going to skip the very beginning of 19 and pick up halfway through. For just as you have presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Now, what are your members? Well, we could certainly consider that in one sense of a bodily member. And I'll be careful because I know that children are present this morning. But I can't avoid the subject simply because of that. After all, the Bible doesn't hold back on this kind of stuff itself. Most certainly, one of the greatest sins and problems that early Christians faced in their sanctification was that of sexual purity. And that of righteously of living righteously within a society where sexual impurity and perversion was not just accepted, but it was promoted. And this sounds familiar, doesn't it? 
One might think that such a description is that of 2019 and not that of 60 A.D. The issues at play in our society with homosexuality and pornography and families with unknown and uncaring parents and, yes, even incest and, God forbid, bestiality, they are not new to us in the United States. So it would certainly be appropriate to understand that the new man, having been raised in righteousness, ought to maintain his or her sexuality in purity, in a godly and biblical way, within the context of marriage and godly intent. Yet sexual purity is not the only aspect that St. Paul is talking about. Members of your body is not simply those parts of your body, but rather also your hands and your feet as you move about. It is your ears as you hear. It is your eyes as you see. It is your mouth as you consume. It is your tongue as you speak. These are all members, all members of your body and faculty, which can, and I dare say, have at some point or another been used to fulfill our sinful earthly passions. Gossiping around the water cooler, fornicating outside of marriage, seeking pleasure in the company of another or in the fantasies of pornography, drinking to excess and to a point where self-control is lost, creating and worshiping false gods in our lives, addictions that take control of us, stealing what is not ours, hurting and slandering others in our rages and our jealousies, and so on. It's St. Paul's list from elsewhere. Like as he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Unholiness cannot exist with holiness. Ungodliness cannot exist with ungodliness. Profession of faith cannot exist with a behavior that acts in the opposite way. And so this leads St. Paul to ask this question in verse 21. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? In other words, what did you really gain from those things? What did you really gain when you entertained and did those things? And we might answer, well, I enjoyed some sort of momentary pleasure, something that I really wanted. Or we might answer, well, I received some sort of monetary gain, something that I really needed. Or we might answer, well, I was able to get some sort of advancement in life or at my job, something that I really deserved. Or maybe we might say, I got payback against someone else who wronged me. Or I got vindication and pleasure of having them hurt like they hurt me. Or I was able to feel a release of anger and frustration that was just welling up inside of me. Do I need to keep going? And I don't think I do because we all know and we probably have all said those very things at some point or another in our life. But what are the ends of such fruit? And what did you really gain when you entertained and did and do those things? Well, St. Paul answers his own question for us. 
He says in the rest of verse 21 that the ultimate end of those things is death. Sinful action, regardless of the momentary pleasures that may be experienced from them, destroys relationships. It destroys oneself. And yes, perhaps it even brings about literal death in things of what we call unnatural deaths. The anguish of the soul, the pain of the mind, the repercussions that ripple outward from one generation unto the next and even unto the third, as the scriptures say. Like as in Eden with our first parents, the fruit of sin is death. Its taste is sweet upon first bite, but it swiftly turns to bitterness, slowly poisoning and killing the soul. Yet Paul will not leave us there. He will continue. And look at verse 22, where Paul will say, but. Verse 22. But, now having been set free from sin, and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness, and the end, everlasting life. The long and short of it is, when we live for our sinful passions, it produces death. When we live in and for our passion unto Christ, it produces life. You see, Jesus died not just to save you from the punishment of sin, but to save you from the passionate desire for sin in your actions and your thinking. Jesus did not come forth from the grave simply to show his power over death, but to literally raise you and me from the grave of sin. The Holy Spirit was not simply to consecrate and empower the witness of the apostles and the church, but to equip and empower every single Christian such that they may act and work and produce fruits of holiness. Now, as we close our time this morning, I do want to say one more thing about Paul's words and imagery here. He speaks of fruit. And some translations have done away with that word fruit and instead say benefit as a way to help make it easier to understand. And it certainly grabs the intention of Paul's words, but it does lose some impact of the imagery. In Greek, the word isn't benefit. It's the word for produce or vegetable or even crop. And that brings with it a certain imagery and understanding, doesn't it? When considering fruit, the question is what... Or who is the fruit for? Is the fruit or the crop for the sake of the vine? Or for the sake of the tree? Or for the sake of the field? Or is the fruit for the sake of another? The normal way of seeing this is to focus on the fact that you are simply bearing the right kind of fruit in your life. By your fruits you shall know them, the scriptures say. And so many focus on the fruit as a testament or as a witness as to how the Spirit of God has worked in my life. We use them as measure as a measurement tool to figure out whether we're being good Christians and whether we're spiritually healthy. If we're being kind, then great for us. If we're being gentle and long-suffering with others, then great for us. If we're avoiding our sinful desires, then great for us. We get to look at our vineyard and say, wow, I have a lot of fruit. And I'm on the right track. 
Notice how the emphasis is on ourselves. And we ought to always measure ourselves in that way to some degree, repenting of that which is unrighteous and asking the power of the Spirit for amendment to do that which is good. But it usually stops there with the individual understanding. And so I must ask again, what is the fruit for? Or should I say, who is the fruit for? Who benefits from our fruit? Is it us? To some degree. Is it God? Ultimately, God needs nothing from us. Or is it those who feed upon our spiritual fruit? Our family, our friends, our fellow believers, our co-workers, our students, our teachers, our teammates, and so on. Is not the fruit of unrighteousness of our sin a means of death to them? That when we produce anger, others are hurt. That when we produce the fruits of vengeance and harsh words, another is torn down. That when we produce the fruits of selfish desire and ambition, another suffers because of it. And likewise, is not the fruit of our holiness in Christ a means of life to them? That when we are forgiving, another is saved. That when we produce kindness, another is lifted up. That when we produce righteousness, another finds life. In Christ. Our sanctification is not simply a matter between me and God to work out, but it is rather a feast of fruit that others may feed upon us. A feast such that others may be nourished by the great fruit of holiness produced in us. Friends, let us keep that in mind as we hear St. Paul's words spoken to us again today. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray that God's Spirit has spoken to you and blessed you today through this sermon. If you would like to learn more about St. Matthias Anglican Church, you can visit us on the web at www.stmkaty.org.